Good morning. Learned something new this week. I don't know, many of you may have grown up or maybe still um, are used to the King James Version of the Bible. Um, I remember I grew up and, and right about my childhood, early childhood is where kind of the NIV kind of came out, was more, uh, get, gaining more popularity back then. And, uh, but I, I, something I've always kind of wondered about and never really understood is when you, maybe you've opened the Bible and seen this on particular editions, sometimes you'll open it a different edition of the Bible and there's words in red. You ever noticed that before? And if you're, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, if you've maybe ever just picked up a Gideon Bible maybe in a hotel room and you may open it up and you may see that. I don't remember if the Gideon Bibles had the words in red or not, but perhaps you've seen this before and you thought, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's interesting. I wonder why they do that. And I, you know what's funny? And, and like, oh, I don't know, what 20-something years of being a Christian now, no one's ever explained that. <laughs> so um, if you're wondering... You're never going to know. I'm just kidding. I'm going to explain it to you. I learned it this week. So um, right about the end of the 19th, early, beginning of the early 20th century, um, they, the, the printing uh, ability had improved to such an extent that somebody had this idea that, um, well, what if, we, um, what if we, we, could, we could actually print the words that Jesus says in red? Now, the reason why that was uh, more helpful than you might think is because the, the, the translators of the King James Version of the Bible, um, they were ill-inclined to put quotation marks. So if you've ever read a copy of the King James, and you may, I had never noticed this before this week, there are no quotation marks. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why is that? And the reason why there's no quotation marks in the King James is because, and that this is what they've said, there's no quotation marks in the original languages. That kind of makes sense, except there's no periods or commas either. So, <laughs> but, that, but so for, the long, for, for, for centuries, uh, once the, the Bible started to be printed in English and actually printed widely as opposed to copied by hand after the use of the printing press, um, the, the King James Version never had quotation marks in it. And so the, the, some of the people that were printing these thought it might be a good idea, especially with, uh, to point out and emphasize the words of Christ, that they would print those in red. And so since they, they, didn't, they didn't have quotation marks, they thought that'd be helpful. That, so that's for those of you who have always wondered why some words in the Bible are red and not others, they thought it would be useful to have the words of Christ written in red when there was no quotation marks. Now, that idea of knowing which words were Jesus's as opposed to anybody else was something that was so important that they printed a whole new Bible to do that in. They, they, it, was a, it was something that was so important, it was foundational to the printing of the Bible itself. There's one more other part of the Bible that you'll have seen that is so important to the whole story of the Bible that the, the Bible is actually printed in a certain way specifically to emphasize this word. And it's whenever, and, and, and so far as I know, every translation of the Bible, every English translation of the Bible does this. Whenever you see the word Lord, and it's in all caps, that word Lord is, it's, and you only see this in the Old Testament, by the way, that word Lord, that all caps word Lord is meant to signify the name for God that we're going to look at today. When he reveals his name to Abraham, or I'm sorry, not to Abraham, but to Moses as uh, Yahweh, I am. Okay, so you've heard that God called the great I am. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, that is referencing this name in Hebrew. That, this name 
is so important to the translators of the Bible, and, and, and rightly so important to the Bible as a whole, that it affects the way we print the whole thing. Every time that word comes up in the Bible, we print it in, upper, in uppercase. And actually, something else I learned, that's actually not all caps, that's called small caps. That's free, you can just keep that. Whenever you have like the first letter is big and the rest of them are little, but also in, in caps, that's called small caps. I didn't know that either, I learned something new. You're welcome. So, the Bible as a whole is affected by this one name and, it, and it, even the way that it's printed um, is affected by this name. A name is extremely important. And this name is the most important name in the Old Testament, which is why the Old Testament is printed the way that it is. Now, a name is super important, super important. In fact, I'm actually learning this. I'm learning all sorts of new things. Um, as we go out and visit people, one of the things I notice, we'll go door to door. And when we do this gospel to every home, we go door to door and um, we'll, we're talking to somebody. And if I come and say, my name is Mark. I'm with Hebrew Baptist Church. We're out praying for people. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And they may or may not respond. But if I say, hi, my name is Mark. What's your name? And they tell me their name. The conversation changes radically. Someone's name and knowing someone's name is huge. It's, it's, it's hugely important in the relationships that we have every day. But the most important place in which we ought to know someone's name is God's name, right? And not that we should know the word Yahweh. If you've never heard that word before, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Um, and, and it's not so much that that, that the, the, the syllables, Yahweh, is important for us. Now, as a matter of fact, I'm not even, we're not even dead sure that's how it's pronounced because in the original Hebrew, there's no vowel sounds. So we're, that's a rough guess. So, and for a long time, honestly, the Jewish people wouldn't even pronounce it because they thought it was profane to pronounce God's name uh, out loud without, uh, unless it was directly from his word. So names are hugely important. So when we, today we're going to be in, in Exodus chapter 6. So if you've got a copy of God's word, I should have told you that already. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. I just remembered. If you, don't have, a, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, Exodus chapter 6 is on page... Should have done this already. It's on page 50. Page 50 is Exodus chapter 6. If you want to use a copy of I encourage you, have that open. We spend the whole time in that text today. So um, you'll want to reference that as we go through. So Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, and it's the same as what you'd find in the Pew Bible here. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord, Lord, all caps there. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by the name the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought, sorry, yes. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession." I am the Lord. 
Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we study this text, give us insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. As we look at the several verses from Exodus chapter 6 today, we're going to see, I hope we see three things about this text. One is God's identity. One is, second is God's ability. And thirdly is God's tenacity. God's identity, his ability, and his tenacity. Let's start with God's identity. Now, when in verse 2 or verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. By the way, that Hebrew word is El Shaddai. Perhaps you've heard that before. If you're familiar with the old Michael Card song. Um, I almost thought about playing that today, but I didn't. Um, yeah, so that's God Almighty. El Shaddai is the Hebrew word. Uh, I, I, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, as El Shaddai, but I was not known to them by the name the Lord. Now, as we've been studying through Exodus, you'll know, this isn't the first time that we see God called the Lord. Matter of fact, he introduces himself as Yahweh at the burning bush story. When Moses is on the mountain and that bush is burning and the Lord speaks, he speaks and says, I am the Lord. When he tells Moses to go bring the people out of Egypt, he, Moses says, who should I say is sending me? You said, tell them I am sent you. That's Yahweh, right? So God is saying, I've been known by the name El Shaddai, but now I will be known by Yahweh. There's some important understandings that we need to have when we look at this. One of the most important things we need to know is God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he says, I have been known by El Shaddai, but now you will know me as Yahweh, he's not saying that you will no longer know me as El Shaddai. Now, that name meant something. As a matter of fact, six times in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Genesis, when God refers to himself or is referred to as El Shaddai, God Almighty, five of those six times is a passage in which God is demonstrating his ability to give Abraham children. Okay? God promised to Abraham that he would make a nation from him, even while Abraham still had no kids. Not only did Abraham have no kids yet, he was 90 years old. It wasn't any more normal in this time period to have a kid at 90 than it is now. Matter of fact, he was in his late 90s by the time Isaac finally showed up. But every time God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or every time they, were, they referred to God, they called him El Shaddai. And that intended to communicate that God was able to give Abraham children. His might was demonstrated in his ability to multiply the family of Abraham, even from one child, just Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob, whose name changed to Israel, which had, he had 12 sons, which populated an entire nation that by this point is upwards of 2 million people. 
So God has proven himself to be indeed God Almighty. He has been able, he is mighty enough to make a nation from Abraham. That doesn't stop being true. God is still El Shaddai. He's not replacing that name. That's important for us to understand because in in other religions, uh, including Islam and Mormonism, in other religions, there's ability for God to change his revelation. This is true, now it's not true anymore, and now this is true. Now, God's word, his revelation, the way in which he explains himself to us, is a reflection of God's character. If God changes in the Bible, becomes a different person, in, in, in terms of the revelation in the Bible, that reflects that God himself changes. And if God changes, he could change right now. If you have trusted in Christ and are saved, if God changed, he could just decide in, in a moment, in a, in, a, in a weak moment of your life when you sin, to, to just give you up to your sin. So it's important, not only for your sake, but for the sake of the internal consistency of Scripture, which it is, that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we have this thing where God says, I was known by El Shaddai, but now I'm called Yahweh, right? Why would he make this transition? I spent a lot of time on this this week. Um, Why this transition? What does it mean to go from El Shaddai, God Almighty, to Yahweh, I am. Now, by the way, that word I am can mean I was, I am, or I will be. Or I am that I am, or I, I was that I was, I am that I am, I will be what I will be. This is the God who exists. He is the God who is the same. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same God, but we are seeing him in a new way in a new light. God has been the one who was mighty enough to make a nation from Abraham, and now God is the one who will rescue his people from their captors, okay? That's what I am means. Matter of fact, in the text, it says that we will know, he, he says, you will know that I am the Lord when I have delivered you from the Egyptians. So that word, that, that name is given to, to, to Moses. Moses knows the name but they don't experience the name. They don't know it. They don't know that they know it until God, in fact, delivers the people of Israel from their, from their captors. So it's important for them to know the same God who is able, by the way, to make a nation from Abraham, and they can look around and they can know because they are the nation that God made from Abraham. And because God did this thing, they're meant to know that God can do this thing. So God's identity in this case is bound up in this name. Let me give you an, an, an example or perhaps an illustration to understand this transition of names. So how many of you have heard of the comedian Steve Martin? Just a raise of hands. So, okay, hopefully, I was really hoping that this would fall flat if y'all hadn't heard of him. But so Steve Martin was a famous comedian. His heyday was kind of 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was just a very silly guy. Okay, did you know that, that Steve Martin is an accomplished banjo player? How many of you knew that? Oh, okay, so more of you than I realized. So some of you thought, oh, I didn't know he played the banjo. As a matter of fact, that's what he spends most of his time doing anymore. He's not in a ton of movies or anything like that. He actually tours playing the banjo. Now, does that mean that Steve Martin is no longer a comedian? No, it doesn't. Was Steve not a banjo player before? 
He's always been a banjo player. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, I, I was, used to be a big Saturday Night Live buff and they had the video of his, of his audition to be on Saturday Night Live. And in that vi video, he plays the banjo. He very rarely played it actually on the show, but he's always been a banjo player. But I didn't know that until I was an adult, even though I like, actually not that long ago, I'd watched the show, but I didn't know that he was a banjo player until recently, right? So and you could say, in a sense, I've gotten to know Steve Martin a little bit better because I'm seeing him in more fullness. I only knew him as a comedian before, but now I know him as a comedian and a banjo player. That's what, that's what this is. This isn't God replacing one personality with another. This is God showing us in a greater fullness who he is by the revelation of his name, Yahweh. And not only is that name uh, uh, shift showing us a, a broader sense of who God is, but it's a deeper sense of knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing him personally. A great example of this knowledge of this personal knowledge of God, or perhaps a negative example, will be fresh in our minds from when we studied Jonah a few months ago. When Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah, he, you know, he, he, God calls him to, to prophesy to Nineveh about their destruction, he doesn't wanna go, he gets swallowed by a whale, spit out the other side, and he ends up going. And there's this moment at the end where God, he gets angry because when he tells the Ninevites about the coming destruction, they repent and God relents, he doesn't destroy them. And man, does that make Jonah mad right? And God says, are you right to be mad? And Jonah says, yes, I'm right to be mad. I knew you were going to do this. And that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew that you were, he says, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better to die than to live. Jonah knew God. He knew him rightly, right? He knew him intimately. He knew what God was going to do. You'll find the more that you know God truly, the more that you read his word and spend time with him in prayer and in fellowship with other believers, the more you begin to be able to predict God because you know, you know him. I know my kids. I know what they're going to do. I spend all my time with them, right? So the more we get to know God, the more we can trust in his consistent character. We can trust God to be exactly who he has always been. His identity, his identity is secure and unchanging. This word Yahweh, the God who exists. This is no tribal deity. This isn't just the God of Israel. This isn't just the God of Europe. This isn't just the God of the white, the Westerner, or the warmonger. This is not just a tribal God. This is the only God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the Egyptians, and he is the God of the universe. And there is no other God but Yahweh. This has huge implications for our lives. For one, if you have not trusted in Christ today, if you are still an unbeliever, you still haven't made up your mind about this whole God thing, whether it's this God, or perhaps you want to try Buddha, or perhaps you want to try Allah, or some other God, like maybe you're trying to make a choice between these gods. Yahweh is not a choice among many. He is a departing point. You believe in God or you do not. 
It isn't like you'll be able to get to him by some other God. There is no other God but God. There is no other God but Yahweh. And so if you're an unbeliever, you're looking to make a choice. That's not a choice between gods. That's a choice between believing in the one true God or not believing at all. He will not be a choice between gods. He will be the only God. Our work of evangelism then is ultimately about taking that name to the nations, to your neighbor, to the one who doesn't know that name. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk door to door and we say, Yahweh, and now you know it. So good, we're good, we're good to go. That's not how evangelism works, right? But what we are doing in our evangelism, when we share the gospel with people, when we go door to door, or we have coffee, or we just meet a stranger and share the gospel with them, we are telling them about our God. We are introducing them to our God, Jesus Christ. That sameness of God that, that he's trying to encourage uh, the Israelites with, the, I, the, one I, the one who multiplied Abraham even though he was dead in terms of his ability to have children and Sarah, her, they're, they're, they were unable to have kids. Even though they were dead, her womb was, the Bible calls, dead. She was unable to have kids. Even though that was the case, this God who made a nation from them is the same God who will rescue the people from Egypt. And he is the same God who can rescue you from your sins. Now, we've, if you've been around church for a while, if you've, heard, if you've read the Bible some, that's not that strange to you, but it actually works backwards. The same God who loves you, and perhaps you're familiar with this idea of, of God's love. Even if you're new to the faith, you've heard that said that God is love, and maybe that's brought you what, what brought you to listen in the first place. But it works backwards too. The one who loved you, the one who died on the cross for your sins, that same God is the God who created you. That same God who loved you and died on the cross for your sins is the same God who made you male or female. That means that he loved you when he died for you and he loved you when he made you. That same God who, who, um, who loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins made you tall, made you short. That same God made you outgoing or an introvert. That same God made you a great singer or a horrible one. That same God in love who died on the cross for us, that same God made you the way he did on purpose. That same God allowed the things to happen in your life to you on purpose. The same God that put you through trials and tribulations, you might say, well, if that God is sovereign and he did this on purpose, that is no God I want. But when we see the way God loves us, it makes us interpret all of those things differently because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that's what that identity means. I, I was that I was, I am that I am, I will be what I will be. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Secondly, once we see God's identity, it helps us to understand God's ability. Not only will God always be himself, everything he has done is done on purpose, and he is not hindered by anything. Nothing can stop him. And so secondly, we see God's ability. So we've seen God's identity, and now we'll see God's ability. Now, when I say God's ability, I mean, I, I mean that in two different ways. One, when I say God's ability, I mean God's ability as opposed to his inability. So stay with me. That means he is not unable. He is able to do what it is he wants to do. 
okay? As we look at the text, this passage is a response to Moses' statement that God has not delivered the Israelite people at all. That's what their statement was. You haven't delivered us. At no point do they say, you are unable to deliver us. They just say, you haven't. If we've read the rest of the story, many of us have, we know that God will and does, in fact, deliver them. So we ask the question, right before the Red Sea, right before the Passover, was God unable up until that point to save his people? Was he unable to save them when Pharaoh says, you now must make bricks without straw and make the same amount of bricks as you did before? Was God unable to save them then? Was God unable to prevent them from going to Egypt in the first place? No. He is able. So if God is able, and God is good, which we'll see, then whatever it is that God does, he does on purpose and for our good. Contrast that with your children. If you've got kids, this will make sense to you pretty quickly. So your kids, when you tell them to do something and they don't do it, you can think theologically. So I, I tell my kids to, to, to do something they need to obey. And theologically, I know, even though it's my job as the father to be their authority, I know that they have sinful hearts. Theologically, I know that, that every person is a sinner. We're all born in sin. I know that theologically. But even if I didn't know that theologically, I would know that by my own experience because my kids don't obey all the time. They do sometimes. I'm not, they're not horrible kids. But they don't always obey. So, but the problem I have as a parent is that my kids' ability to obey and their desire to obey are mushy. I can never really tell if when my children disobey, it's because they can't obey or because they don't want to. That's challenging and frustrating. Can I get an amen from any parents in here? Yes, we can't know if it's their inability to obey because of their sinful nature, or if it's they're just, they're just being in disobedient. They're just, they're, they, don't, they don't want to. But a nickel for every time I ask a kid, why did you disobey? And they respond, oh, because I wanted to. Well, that's theologically correct, right? So it, they're, they're both in sin and they want to sin, right? Now, contrast that with God. Is God able to do is, is, is there any point where we have to wonder, is God able to do this? No, we don't ever have to wonder. That's never, with kids, we have to ask, ask all the time. I don't know if, am I expecting too much out of my kid? You never have to wonder if you're expecting too much from God. Let me say that one more time. You never have to wonder if you're expecting too much from God. He can do it. He can do anything. He's capable of anything. So then, With a kid, we're wondering, uh, is it because they're sinful or is it because they want to? With God, you know this is not true. So then you just have to deal with the will of God at that point. Which, oh, that's all, just the will of God. It certainly narrows it down, doesn't it? We We can know that what God does, he does it on purpose. And because he is good, we know that he does it out of love. Because he is wise, we know he does it rightly. That's why it's so important to remember God's character is consistent, right? So there are, 
That's the church is a people who are gathered together under a God who, who is, who, who, who is consistent in their lives and in ours. Now, God works in different ways in different lives, but the church is a people. And, and one of the things that we hold in common is that God that we worship, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but also for you and for you and for me. He rescues, he saves, he provides, he protects. It's this, that, that God's doing the same, some of the same things among all of us. And that's one of the things that draws us together as a church. Many of you find yourselves, and I've got lots of friends right now, that are in a difficult time in their workplace. Uh, perhaps you are in a job that, by God's grace, is providing for you, or perhaps it's not providing what you need. Perhaps it is, it is fulfilling or not fulfilling, but, but you, maybe you have a job and you're not happy in your job. Or maybe you don't have a job and wish you had a job. Many of us are in this scenario. It seems like now more than ever we're in this scenario where there's a lot of mobility and a lot of uncertainty. Let me comfort you from this text. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow is also the God who is able to do anything. So you are where you are because God put you there, but also God can put you somewhere else. If, if you are struggling in your workplace, whether you have a job that you hate or whether you don't have a job at all and you wish you had a job or any number of things, if you haven't prayed about it, then, then you've not consulted the only one who can do anything about it. The one who is able, the one who put you there in the first place, and also the one who can take you from there. If it's, if it's, if it's, if it's just killing your soul, perhaps we call out to God and say, I just can't help but think this isn't the place for me. Or if, you're, or if you don't, if you can't seem to find a job, think to yourself, God can get me a job tomorrow. So why hasn't he done it yet? That's an interesting question. What is God wanting me to do right now? That he's preventing this thing. And maybe it's not a job, maybe it's any number of things that you're praying about, but then you think if God could do it and he, he, he's good enough to do it, then why hasn't he done it yet? And the answer may very well be because there's something that still needs to take place in your life before that happens. Think to yourself, what is God doing with me? What is God teaching me? In this moment, what if it, that I haven't learned yet that God hasn't cracked on with whatever it is his will for me is? But we can trust that God is able and he's always the same. Your marriage might be, you may be putting on a face here today or around your friends, but maybe when you go home, your marriage is on the rocks. And you think to yourself, this could never work. I, I, I'm never going to understand this person. I'm never going to get along with this person. We, we, we just can't stay together. But God can do anything. Let me encourage you today. If your marriage is on the rocks and you think that there is no hope for you, there is. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who rescued the Egyptians with a strong hand and a mighty arm, the same God who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again on the third day, that same God can bring reconciliation in your marriage, in your friendships, in your acquaintances, in your workplace, God can do anything. In fact, how different would our lives be if instead of wondering, can I do this, we asked, can God do this? 
Instead of our lives revolving around what we're capable of, what our gifting is, what our resources are, instead we said, what can God do? What could God do in this situation? What could God do in my life? What could God do for us as a church if we just prayed? Whatever it is you think that the church should be, if it's inconsistent with what you see, are you praying for us? Are you praying for the church to be the thing that God wants it to be? What could happen among us as a people if we prayed and God moved mightily? What could God do? There's no telling. We've not seen the extent of what God is able to do in our lives and in this church. So we, first we see that God's ability is, is opposed to his inability. He is able, he's not unable. But secondly, God's ability, we see that God is able when we are unable. So God's ability as opposed to our inability. Okay? And we see that abundantly clear in here. Two different places in our text. But before this, Pastor Allen preached the other week. He was talking about that idea of making bricks without straw. And, and you can't do that, by the way. If, if, you, if you've ever tried to make a brick without straw, it doesn't work. They had to go get straw. They just had to go get it themselves. That task was impossible. It was impossible. They couldn't do it. And so when Moses comes back to them and says, God's going to rescue them, it says they didn't believe him. They didn't listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. They were unable to listen. That, is, that verse is such good news to us. And you think to yourself, oh, that doesn't sound like good news at all. They were unable. They were hard-pressed. They were exhausted. Why is that good news for us? It's good news for us because God noticed. God cared that they were unable to save themselves. God understood their weakness. God, in this moment, any one of us probably would have said, well, if you're not gonna believe me, then I'm not gonna bother saving you. That's what I would say. I'm not gonna waste my time with somebody who doesn't believe I can save them. Thank God that he is not like me. Thank God that he is holy and righteous, and just, and good, and he doesn't just leave them in Egypt, despite the fact that they don't believe that he could save them. Moses himself says, well, how is, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me when I couldn't even get the Israelites to listen to me, because I'm a terrible speaker? We've talked about this a few times in this series. How many of us have used our lack of gifting and evangelism as an excuse to never share our faith? Moses is wrong. The problem isn't his inability to speak. And God is about to show that. Because why did God, how did God send the people of Israel out of Egypt? Was it because of Moses' ability? Was it because of something Moses said? No. It's because God sent plagues. God made it more miserable to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for the Israelites to stay than it would have been if they just let them go. So after 10 plagues, what happens? They go. It had nothing to do with Moses. God did it. Moses and the Israelites are too concerned about what they can't do to think about what God could do. But before we spend some time thinking about how awful that is and how unfaithful they were, 
That's us, y'all. That's how we are. But God delighted to save them anyway. I've seen this over and over again, and I've been tempted to do it myself. There's this thing when you give somebody a gift, or maybe a better example is when you're sitting and you go out to lunch with somebody and there's that moment at the end of the meal where you like argue over who's going to pay the bill or whatever. Has anybody ever had that experience or maybe just me? Or or like, you know, you, you, you offer to help or to pay for something or to give a gift. And there's that response that, like that, that humble, super humble response, like, oh, you didn't have to do that. Oh, no, no, please don't. Please don't. No, no, no. I don't need that. No, no, no. You know, no. Well, have you ever been on the, you probably have, been on the side of like the giver? Like, I want to buy your lunch. Shut up. <laughs> Let me buy your lunch. Right? How do you feel when the other person says, no, 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 I can, no, no, I can, no, 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 I can. I love, like, how do you feel? You feel that the thing that you had in mind to do that was good, now it's like tainted. Now it's like you had to fight with them to pay for their lunch. It's not, it's not the same anymore. It's kind of like, I, I paid for the lunch, but I also like argued with them. It's a nasty feeling, right? It ruins the good thing you were trying to do. Or, or um, I would love to, to, to help you, to, you know, I, your friend tells you, oh, we're, we, you know, we're having this financial problem and the Lord has blessed you. He says, I, I would love to help you with this. Can I, can I pay for this for you? Or, or I would love to help you move. Oh, no, 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 we, we don't need help. No, no, yeah, you do, I've moved. You need help, right? There, and ultimately, I think all deep down we know that's a false humility, right? That's like, I don't need your help. I'm good enough on my own. It's not humility, it's pride. And it ruins the gift. How do you think God feels when he knows what he can do and we don't believe he can do it? Now you ask, well, I believe that God can do anything. Well, are you bothered by anything and haven't prayed about it? Are, are you, when we don't pray, when we don't ask God for something, we think one of two things. One, God can't do it, or God wouldn't do it. Or two, it would be bad if God helped. Do we, either of those make sense? We, we don't have because we don't ask. God can do anything. So some applications of this. If you, are, if you are new to this, you're, maybe this is your first Sunday or maybe you're checking us out online, you're new to this idea, and um, you're, you're looking for something, uh, Christianity may be an answer to you, you think, uh, to raise your self-esteem. Perhaps you, you don't feel good about yourself and you want to find uh, somewhere that will make you feel better about yourself. You've come to the wrong place. <laughs> I'm kidding. The Bible is not about making you feel better about yourself. The more you read the Bible, the more it teaches you that you can't do it. This is a very motivational message, by the way. We're gonna put this on a poster and there's gonna be a cat on it. It's gonna hang up in the dentist office. You can't do it, is what it says on the bottom. The more we read the Bible, the more God makes it abundantly clear we are unable to do anything good. That doesn't mean we're not gifted. That doesn't mean we can't make great art. 
That doesn't mean we can be great at sports. That doesn't mean we can be kind to our brothers and sisters. But ultimately, we can't save ourselves from the, the, the worst pickle we've ever been in. We can't dig ourselves out of the pit of sin and death, no matter how hard we try. And the people of Israel couldn't save themselves from the Egyptians. So again, how would your life change if the, if the power of God weren't in it? How many of these things that you plan to do in the next week, in the next month, in the next year with your life could you do if the Holy Spirit didn't help you? How many of the things that we try to do as a church could we do without God? And before you go, oh, nothing. Well, that's the spiritual answer. There are things we do all the time that we do in our own steam, in our own power. All the time. Now, God, you could go all the way to the bottom and say, God gives you the breath and the blood and all that stuff to do stuff. Yeah, okay, fine. But I'm talking about a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. How many of the things that you plan to do this week, this month, this year, that you know you can't do unless God works? I looked at my own life and I thought, you know, not very many things. Not very many things are in my life that if God doesn't show up, it won't happen. And yet God is able, and, we, and the, the text tells us over and over again, we are unable. So let us always consider, instead of what could we pull off, consider what could God pull off, both in our own lives and in the church. So the point where our inability and God's ability meet is the gospel, where God's tenacity is displayed. And that's the third thing. So we've seen God's identity, God's ability, and now we're going to look at God's tenacity. He does it anyway. Again, what would the book of Exodus be like if God says, well, if you don't believe me, I'm just not going to save you? What would the Bible look like? One, it would be about three pages. Because this is what God is doing again and again through the entire Bible. Is even though you don't believe me, I'm going to deliver you. Even though you don't follow me, I'm going to save you. Even before you repented even, I'm going to save you. While you hate me, that is the gospel. The lack of ability due to be overwhelming, due to be overwhelmed, the Israelites would not listen to Moses. They wouldn't listen to God because they were unable to listen. They were too hard pressed. Now it's important to remember in this entire story, and we maybe haven't said this enough, we need to be reminded that the reason that the people of Israel are in Exodus, this is a unique experience in the Bible because they're not in Exodus because of their sin. This is not a punishment to Israel. Now, the Babylonian captivity, absolutely. Every time God, God lets the people of Israel be conquered by other nations, every time they're in exile, yes, those are due to Israel's unrepentant sin. But the Exodus is not. The people of Israel are just completely helpless. God 
told Moses, God told Abraham it would happen, 400 years from now, you'll be returning to this spot, but in that time, you'll be under slavery. But it's not because of their sin. But that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is on their inability. So they were unable to listen because of their hardship. And Moses is unable to convince Pharaoh and the Israelites because of his lack of ability to speak. This is not one of those half have faith like this Bible character had. Like that's not the application to this text. It's not like be like Moses. No, don't be like Moses, okay? Moses misses the point. Be like Israel. They're the good guys, right? Well, at this point, they're pretty helpless and hopeless. Who's the star of the show? It's God. The Israelites can't save themselves. They can't make bricks without straw. Moses can't speak with a darn. And God says, hey, y'all watch this. Right before our text, watch me deliver you from the Egyptians. Let's say as a parent, you've planned a trip to Disney World. Those of you who can afford that sort of thing. Um, and you've planned this and you've spent thousands of dollars on on park passes and hotel rooms and, and um, airport, air, uh, airfare and all this stuff. It's expensive, right? You're going through all this trouble. About halfway down, halfway there, you're, let's say you're in the air. Let's just make this absurd for a second. You're in the air on the airplane and your kids are just being rascals, right? They're screaming, they're beating each other up. And you're, you're tempted to say, I will turn this plane around, right? But even if you had the opportunity, would you? If you could go hijack the plane and turn it around and fly back to CVG, would you? After you've spent thousands of dollars to get ready for this, you've planned for months and months. Many of you maybe even didn't even tell your kids you were going and it was a big surprise and you're working all this time to not tell them. After all that preparation and all that investment, would you really turn that plane around? I bet not. It's amazing the stuff you will put up with when you're invested in something like that. God is invested in us as a people. God is invested in Israel as a people. He's so invested, he staked his name on it. His name who he was, who the rest of the world would know him to be, was based entirely on his ability to save the people of Israel from the Egyptians. The entire Old Testament, every time they encounter a new people, that new people is scared to death of what God did to the Egyptians on Israel's behalf. God is invested and he will not turn. He has staked his name on it. And the name, the greater name, the name above all other names he has staked on, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. He has staked his name on our salvation. If he can't save us, it is his name that goes through the mud. If, Egypt, if Israel cannot be saved from Egypt, God looks stupid. He wrote his name on it. He's that invested. And Christian, he wrote his name on you. He is invested 
in you. And like he didn't give up on the Egyptians when they lost faith, he will not give up on you. Isn't that good news? Unbeliever today, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if this is new to you today, or maybe perhaps you've heard it a thousand times, but you've never followed Christ. While you were in your rebellion, just like me, while I was in my rebellion, while you were not following God, while you hadn't given God a second thought, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were helpless, slaves to sin and death, it was worse than bricks without straw. We couldn't be righteous before God if our lives depended on it, and they do. God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that is the story of God's people. That's the story of God's people in Israel. That's the story of God's people in Egypt. That's the story of God's people in Babylon. That's the story of God's people in the promised land or anywhere else. And that is the story of God's people, the church today. God is with us and he is for us and he will never give up on us, amen? An unbeliever, that is true for you. God will never give up on you. He loves you and he wants you to follow him. And he loves you even while you do the stuff you're doing. Believer, unbeliever alike. So let's praise God. Let's lift up Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. And let's follow him, trusting in all things that he is, that he, he is who he is, that he can do anything, and that he will never give up on us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for making yourself known to us. And thank you for despite our sin and our rebellion and all the things that we would do to break your heart and to break your law, thank you that you've never given up on us. We pray, uh, Lord, that you would make that known in our lives, that we would remember that, and that as we continue to follow you, help us to continue to trust. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.